0: Thank you for joining us today we'll be continuing our study of the book of matthew we'll be discussing jesus's transfiguration and what jesus says about taxes so if you'll open your bibles up to matthew chapter 17 we'll begin our lesson and why don't we get started in prayer father in heaven we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together and we thank you for this group and all the members of this group we also thank you for those who are able to listen in remotely And I ask that you just continue to bless this time together. We ask that the Holy Spirit work in a way to open each of our hearts and minds this morning to something maybe that we haven't considered before, an area in our life that we need to work on. And just let this scripture that we continue to read today in Matthew just work in our hearts in a way to change us into the people that you want us to be. I ask that you speak through me, speak through any of those who speak up, This morning during our discussion so that we can all learn from one another and we ask all this through your son Jesus and we all pray together amen so we're continuing our study of Matthew we're in Matthew chapter 17 this morning and where we left off last time you recall Jesus is now focusing his ministry more on his disciples He has been explaining to them that he's going to have to suffer and die, be buried and be raised on the third day. We saw him describing that to the disciples last time in Matthew 16, verse 21. And you recall then Peter took Jesus aside and said, no, it can't be that way. Then Peter was rebuked by Jesus. And in fact, Jesus even told him, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. So Jesus corrected Peter, and he's trying to explain to them that he has to go through this suffering to pay for our sins, and he's encouraging the disciples to follow him. So he's going to continue his ministry to the disciples as we see as we move into chapter 17, and so let's begin. Verse 1, and six days later, so this is six days after what we discussed last time, Jesus took with him peter and james and john his brother meaning james's brother and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves you can also if you're taking notes you can read this same account in mark 9 1 through 8 and luke 9:27 through 36 and we're about to see what is called the transfiguration of jesus And so we're going to see Jesus is really taking these three disciples, who we've talked about before, are really the closest to Jesus. And these are the leaders of the disciples. So he takes the three of them up this mountain with him. Verse 2, And he, being Jesus, was transfigured before them. and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Jesus gives them a glimpse of really the kingdom and Jesus's glory and this light. He's transformed and gives them a picture of what this heavenly Jesus with his heavenly body might look like. He shows the glory of God. He's trying to show them that he is, in fact, God. He is the promised Messiah. He's still trying to teach them who he is. Let's continue on. Verse 3. And behold... Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him, talking with Jesus. So this is really interesting that we see now Moses is right there with Jesus. Let me come back. Well, let me go ahead and touch on that now. I find this fascinating because you remember way back when, when we were studying Genesis and other scripture in the Old Testament, you will recall that Moses was not allowed, because he struck the rock, rather than speaking to it, to get water out of it, as God had instructed. Moses was not allowed to lead the Israelites into the Promised Land. In fact, let's just go over there and take a quick look at that. If you'll turn with me real quick over to Deuteronomy 32, all the way back over to the Old Testament, the very beginning, fifth book of the Bible. Let's start in verse 48, Deuteronomy 32:48. And the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, Go up to this mountain of the Abram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for a possession. And now look what God says to him. Then die on the mountain where you ascend, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor, and was gathered to his people. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. For you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go there into the land which I am giving the sons of Israel. So Moses can't go in because he disobeyed God's command. You can go look at that in Numbers chapter 20, verses 8 through 13. And then just flip over to the right just a few chapters. Go over to chapter 34 of Deuteronomy. And let me just hit a couple of verses. Chapter 34, verse 1. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo. So he's going where God told him to go. And then skip down to verse 4. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants, I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, being God, buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Bethpor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. Although Moses was a 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. So the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Deuteronomy ends, and then we see the book of Joshua begins, and now Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land. I find it fascinating that here we are at the transfiguration. God didn't let Moses go into the promised land because he was not obedient to what God told him to do and how to bring water forth from the rock. We discussed that before, so I don't want to go into it now, but it was also probably due to his attitude as well to the Israelites who were just wearing him out. But here we see what a great God. He didn't let him go in with the Israelites, but here he lets him come in right here with Elijah, right here at the Transfiguration. So he is standing on the Promised Land. So God let Moses stop on the Promised Land, even though he died before he could bring the Israelites in. I think that's pretty cool. And then we've got Elijah and Elijah, you'll recall, let me show you where that is, what I'm going to refer to, but it's over in Second Kings. Hopefully you can find that. If you go over to Psalms and Proverbs in the middle of the Old Testament, then just keep going back to the left and you'll pass by Chronicles and you'll get over to Second Kings. And I want to show you chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Then it came about, as they were going along and talking, and this is Elijah and Elisha, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. So Elijah was a prophet, a great prophet. Elijah did not die. He just went up into a cloud like a whirlwind. And so here we have Moses, who represents the law of the Old Testament, And Elijah, who represents the prophets of the Old Testament. So you've got the whole Old Testament represented here with Jesus. So two Old Testament saints. We've got three New Testament saints in Peter, James, and John. And we have Jesus all together at this transfiguration of Jesus. So let's watch what happens. And remember, this is six days after Peter was rebuked by Jesus. Jesus told him, Satan, get behind me. So Peter's now wanting to kind of do the right thing. Let's watch what happens. Verse 4. I'm back over in Matthew 17, verse 4. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter may have been thinking about the Feast of Booths, which was a feast that was celebrated about this time. It was six months before Jesus' crucifixion. It's a big festival that commemorates when the Israelites' exodus from slavery in Egypt. And so what we see here is Peter is sort of placing Jesus at the same level as the great Moses and the great Elijah. He's saying, Jesus, you're great, and Moses is great, and Elijah is great, and I want to honor the three of you and build these little tabernacles, these booths for you. And while he is talking, watch what happens. While Peter is speaking, verse 5, "...behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased." hear him. So God is basically telling Peter to be quiet and to listen, listen to his son, Jesus. And that's the same thing, by the way, that God the Father said at Jesus' baptism when we were over in Matthew 3. You can go look at that, Matthew 3, 17. Verse 6, and when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were much afraid. So they're terrified. They don't know what's going on. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. So here Jesus is giving them comfort. He's not rebuking them for being fearful. Verse 8. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. So things now go back to the way they were. Moses and Elijah now are gone. And it's back just the three disciples with Jesus. Verse 9. And as they were coming down from the mountain Jesus commanded them saying tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead so Jesus is trying to help out these three disciples help them understand who he is what the plan is and so he has shown them this sign this transfiguration to try to help them see he is indeed the Messiah and remember Elijah, I didn't point this out, I just wanted you to remember that Elijah was the model for John the Baptist, the forerunner for Jesus. Let me just show you that verse. It's Malachi, just go back over to the book right before Matthew, last book in the Old Testament. In fact, the last page of the Old Testament, Malachi 4. And let's skip down to verse 5. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. So everyone knew this Old Testament ends, and remember there was no prophet speaking for over 400 years after Malachi ends, but they were looking for Elijah. Here Elijah appears again during the transfiguration, And he was the forerunner, as we read about John the Baptist earlier when we were in Matthew. So let's look what the disciples say. Verse 9, And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So they're referring to Malachi 4, 5 through 6 that we just read. Verse 11 And Jesus answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. So Jesus is saying that John the Baptist fulfilled that prophecy that we saw in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6 just as he had said in Matthew 11, 14, when we were over in Matthew 11. Just flip over to the left. We'll go over there and read that again. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because we really dug into this when we were studying Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verse 11, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not been anyone greater than John the Baptist. And then skip down to verse 14. And if you care to accept it, He, being John the Baptist, himself is Elijah, who was to come. Again, you can go back and listen to the podcast when we discussed all that in Matthew 11. I won't do it here. But here you can see the disciples again are saying, gee, we thought Elijah had to come first. They're beginning to see just who Jesus is. They're beginning to understand. And they're now realizing that Malachi... 4 verses 5 through 6 has been fulfilled in John the Baptist, and Jesus is the Messiah, and God's plan is way further along than what they had realized. That's what they're beginning to see. And Jesus again is telling them that while John the Baptist, remember he had his head cut off by herod we talked about that when we were in matthew 11 john the baptist was telling herod that he had an immoral relationship with herodias who was not his wife at the time was actually the wife of his brother and because of that herodias then asked herod to cut the head off of john the baptist when her daughter danced for herod in a big group you'll recall that so jesus is saying look John the Baptist had to suffer a lot. He was there. They didn't recognize him as the forerunner. They did whatever they wished to him. In fact, they cut his head off. And he says, and so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. So he's trying to tell them he's got to go through some really intense suffering. Verse 14, and when they came to the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he is an epileptic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. So they're coming down the mountain. And remember, Peter, James, and John are with Jesus. So these are the remaining nine disciples who had been trying to cure this man's son. That's who we're talking about. And what we're going to see is the nine disciples, they were not able to fully utilize the power that Jesus had given them. You remember over in Matthew 10, let's just flip back over to Matthew 10 real quick, just a little bit over to the left and go to verse six. And Jesus commands them, says, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you received, freely give. So Jesus gave them this power, but they weren't able to utilize it because their faith, we're going to see, had not progressed to the point of truly having saving faith yet. Verse 17, And Jesus answered and said, O unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Verse 18, and Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. So they just didn't have the faith to be able to utilize the power. Their faith had not grown enough to continue to persist in casting out that demon. When they felt a little bit of problem, you know, they gave up. They just didn't have the faith to believe that Jesus had given them this power and that they would be able to utilize it. Verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? So they're wondering, why is that? And Jesus says to them in verse 20, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there and it shall move and nothing shall be impossible for you. So their faith had not grown yet from the faith of a mustard seed into a great tree. That's what a mustard seed does. It turns into this great tree. And they just were not able to be persistent in the face of obstacles. And so Jesus is saying, don't give up on God. Don't give up on his power that you have. Have faith. Now, depending on which translation you have, verse 21 is a marginal note. It also includes in some versions, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. While it's not included in Matthew, that is included in Mark's account, although even the fasting is not in some of the earliest manuscripts. I just point that out to you. That's why that's noted that way. Verse 22, And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised again on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Now, he's told them this continually, but it's just not registering with them. It seems like they're missing the point. They're missing the point about the resurrection and the need for a Savior to die for our sins. In a way, I guess they may still be looking for a conquering king. They just can't quite comprehend this. And I know we talked about this last time. Even when the disciples, all of them flee, as we will see at Jesus' crucifixion, other than John, he's there. And even when they're told that the tomb is empty, they still don't even understand and remember, it was pointed out that they had not received the Holy Spirit yet. That happens in Acts. So. But Jesus is trying to help them see what's about to happen. Now, the final part as we wrap up this chapter 17 has one of the coolest miracles. <laughs> Just stay tuned. I love this. So verse 24, And when they had come to Capernaum, which you'll remember, that's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is a lake. So they're on the north shore there. When they had come to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher, meaning Jesus, not pay the two drachma tax? So what is this? That's equivalent to about two days wages, and it was paid as a temple tax. The Romans allowed the Jews to collect this temple tax in order to maintain the temple. And the Jewish temple tax collectors, they represented the Jewish religious leaders, and they would come around and collect this tax so that they could maintain the temple. So let's see what happens. Verse 25 And he, being Peter, said, Yes. And when Peter came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs and poll taxes? From their sons or from strangers? So the customs tax is a tax on goods. The poll tax was just a tax levied on individuals. That's what those two taxes are. And so Jesus is saying the kings, when they levy taxes, do they go after their family to collect taxes or do they go after everyone that's not in their family? The king's family was basically exempt from paying taxes. The king would go collect taxes from everyone who's not in the family. You with me? And so these Jewish leaders are coming to collect taxes from strangers, right? Not in the family. Interesting. Verse 26. And upon his saying from strangers, that's Peter says, yeah, they collect tax from strangers, not from family. Jesus said to him, consequently, the sons are exempt. So Jesus is saying, look, we're exempt from the temple tax they aren't civil taxes jesus is teaching that believers are god's children we're part of god's family we're not part of that jewish religious family that are all hypocrites and so we're exempt from the old covenant obligations that have basically they're being nullified by the new covenant the temple was god's house in the old testament But not anymore, as we will see when Jesus dies. The veil of the temple is split in half, and now God doesn't occupy the temple. In fact, the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, so it doesn't even exist anymore. God now lives in us, in our hearts, through the Holy Spirit. When we receive the Holy Spirit, when it's given to us, when we become believers, we're part of the church so he's saying that you as a believer have no obligation or not obligated to pay the temple tax all right that's what he's saying here but now jesus is going to use this opportunity to actually show how our relationships with unbelievers need to come first and sometimes we have to give up our rights in our responsibilities as believers, as children of Jesus, to actually do things so that we don't cause others to not want to put their faith in Jesus Christ. So we have a responsibility to live in peace with others and to help draw them into the kingdom. So watch. Jesus has just said, you're right, we're exempt from the temple tax, but now watch what he does. I love this. Verse 27. So Jesus is talking, he says, but lest we give them offense, meaning all the religious leaders and their followers, he tells Peter, go to the sea, by the way, you remember Peter's a fisherman, go to the sea, throw in a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a stater." Now, what is a stater? A stater is a shekel, it's worth, guess how many? Four drachmas which is the temple tax for two people, he and Peter. Look what he says. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Is that not awesome? Makes you want to become a fisherman, doesn't it? Is that not just awesome? I love that. So Jesus is clearly teaching here that we are to pay our taxes, even when the government is run by unbelievers, even when taxes are used for the wrong purposes. The temple tax was actually being paid to preachers of false teachings. Yet Jesus said, pay the tax to keep the peace. Even though you're not obligated to pay it, I'm telling you to pay it. And that way it won't cause offense to others. It's also interesting to see God provides for his children. He provided this temple tax for he and Peter. And God provides to us. God knows we have to pay our taxes, And the things that God gives us, He gives us what we need in order to do what He tells us to do. Real quick, let me just show you something. We studied this when we were in Romans. Go over to the right, all the way past all four Gospels and and Acts, and then you'll get to Romans. And let's look at Romans 13 real quick. It's just good to remember this. Romans 13, and I'm not going to do an in-depth study. I'm just going to read it so you know where this comes from. Romans 13. This is Paul speaking. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. This is really important for us to remember, especially with the election and all the division and everything that we have in our country right now. I encourage everyone to vote. Vote who God places on your heart to vote for. But at the same time, whoever is president, whatever happens, God is in control here. It doesn't come as a shock to God. And even as we have studied the Old Testament, God works through some terrible people. So even if the person who wins is someone who you just don't think is representative of God— Remember, they didn't get that position without God, no matter how good or bad they are. There were lots of good kings and bad kings in Israel, but every one of those were there because God put them there for a reason. And so we're told to just pray for our leaders. Well, let me just read the rest of this. Verse 2, Therefore he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So whatever laws there are, unless it violates Scripture, we are to obey. Verse 3, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Or wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom is due, Fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor is due. Okay? I just wanted to point that out, given the divisiveness that we see in our country, in our culture. We need to pray for our leaders. At the same time, we need to recognize whoever's there. We need to obey unless we're told to do something counter to Scripture and realize that God is working through these people in some way. we may not completely understand it. I can tell you, I certainly don't. But that's what we're told to do. So as I summarize this chapter, we're to relinquish our rights. If the exercise of our rights are going to impede the ability of someone else to become a believer in Jesus, we're also to pay our taxes. God's going to provide for everything that we need. And ultimately, we've got to have faith in Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. We need to praise Him. We need to give Him thanks. We need to be obedient to His will, seek His will. And Jesus will give us tremendous power through the Holy Spirit who lives within us to be able to do many, many mighty things. So with that, let me open it up for discussion. I'd love to hear your comments and uh, thoughts on Matthew 17. Anybody thinking about going fishing so you can pay your taxes?
1: Where did you read from, Larry? What were you reading from about, you know, obey your rulers?
0: That's in Romans 13, one through seven. Okay.
2: Larry, I always think about, when I start thinking about Romans 13 and what you're talking about, Jesus paying the taxes, my mind goes back to Daniel. And Daniel served under, the best we can understand in the Book of Daniel, like four different leaders from three different regimes. and. The places he rebelled was like when they told him they passed the law that nobody could pray except to Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel, it says, he went opened up his windows and pointed his face toward Jerusalem and to started praying. Of course, he got thrown at a lion's den. Sometimes the cost of doing what God says sometimes is very high to the point of our lives. But he never hedges on that. Cause he, what you said, he's there, he's going to take care of us. That's what he did. And his Father sure took care of him
0: which is very appropriate given everything that we're seeing going on right now in our country.
2: One other little point there is a huge point, but two of those leaders gave glory to God. I'm not declaring that they were what we would call believers, but I can't say they weren't because they came to a point in looking at Daniel's life and what he stood for. Like with Peter and Paul said, you know, we've got to obey God rather than men.
0: Yeah, that's a great story. In fact, the reason they passed that law is they knew, the people who were after Daniel knew that that's what he did every day, was he would go open the window, face Jerusalem, and pray. He did it. Everyone knew that. And so they passed a law to say you couldn't do that, knowing that Daniel, being obedient, would do it. And then they had him. And, of course, Daniel relied on God and knew, hey, you can't tell me not to pray to God. I really appreciate you bringing that out.
1: Larry, what occurs to me is that Matthew seventeen, you've got some supernatural things happening. and in our culture today, we're being encouraged to not think or believe in that things can happen supernaturally. The, the elites and the intelligentsia are trying to have a uh, scientific explanation for everything as if nothing ever happened supernatural as if God doesn't have power to do supernatural things. and through Jesus, we're supposed to have faith that we can do supernatural things as long as we're in the vine and we depend on Him. And here He flushes at his disciples that couldn't heal the boy that had seizures because they didn't have the faith, and that's just the message to us. We just have to have faith. we just have to depend on Christ. We just have to believe, and even if things don't go the way we think they should, like you're saying, we should have comfort that God's in control. But we still want us to have faith. He still wants us through Christ try to do good things that are God's will. Anyway, that's what Matthew 17, there's some of that in there for me.
0: That's really awesome. And I have an example of that that I can share with you that just happened to me last week. I have been working to get my book all final and off to the printer, which good news is also through God's grace and guidance and help. It's now at the printer being printed. I was having to hit all these deadlines so that I could get it to the printer in time for it to come out. And guess what happened to me? I got a brand new computer about five months ago. My other computer and phone both just crashed. I got a new computer. Everything's on there. But it's so new, and I've been so busy with my book, I hadn't backed up anything. Guess what happened? My computer, my brand new computer, it said it needed a update, and when it updated, It completely overwrote everything it reformatted my disc I lost everything everything and so I just said okay God I'm trusting you obviously I'm trying to get this book out maybe it's an attack from Satan he doesn't like all this stuff that's in this book I don't know what's going on but I trust you I could be really frustrated I could be angry I could be scared I could be a lot of things, but I'm trusting you. I don't know why you had this happen, but I need a miracle. Please give me a miracle. Well, I take my hard drive over to our friend. He says, he verifies, yep, it's been totally wiped clean. Nothing is left on your hard drive, brand new hard drive. So I come back. This is on Monday morning early. And I said, okay, God, I know if I need something, you're going to, provide it somehow, but I'm just going to start over from scratch I go back to some of my old drafts of stuff and what have you. And I start loading up the new programs and what have you. And I'm serious. You are not going to believe this. By the way, I then myself reformatted the hard drive just in case there was a problem on there. I wanted it totally clean. So it's totally clean. Everything's gone. I load up Office so I can get Word and you know, Excel and what have you. As soon as it loads up, you're not going to believe. They just start showing up from nowhere. Everything's there. I don't even know where it's coming from. It's just coming in. I can see it coming in loading in. I got my latest drafts of everything. It's like, thank you, God. You are amazing. I don't know. I'm just telling you, all I could sit there, I was just smiling ear to ear saying, thank you, God. I know I'm being attacked by Satan I trusted you, and you're going to provide whatever I need. I'm sure I lost a lot of stuff, but anything that I really need, you're going to provide for me. And I was able to hit the deadline and get the stuff off. And anyway, that was my miracle. That was my supernatural event. He gave me encouragement on Saturday, told me to bring it in Monday. So I was encouraged all weekend that God was going to work through to save the day. He said, I got really bad news, but God came through. (laughs) Unbelievable. A miracle.
2: That gives me a whole new meaning to in the cloud.
0: <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> I didn't see a Shekinah or anything, but man, I tell you, when I started seeing stuff, just I am going, where is this stuff coming from? Just coming in, coming in my, all my folders, everything. <laughs> wow. I believe in miracles. Just trust God. That's all I can tell you. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this podcast and my weekly blog by sending a text to 56316, type Larry in the text box, and hit send. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.